Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. Here we are, the last chapter of Luke. It's our 133rd message in this great gospel. My, plan, my aim is to finish it here in the next three weeks. That's my goal. I believe I have three messages left, but we shall see what happens. An empty tomb, a fulfilled promise is the title. As we look at Luke chapter 24, we're looking at the first 12 verses. So we're going to actually bite into Luke chapter 24, some bigger pieces than we normally do and chew on. Let me ask you this. What kind of evidence would it take to convince you of the existence of Bigfoot, of intelligent aliens from outer space, for global warming, or the fact that Elvis is truly, really alive? What type of evidence would it take to convince you of these and maybe other things that are very difficult or sometimes hard to agree or believe? Even today, we have people who believe that the earth is flat, believe it or not. There are people who still struggle believing that, um, uh, that we went to the moon back in 1969 or the fact they believe uh, conspiracy theories, that 911 was something that was done by our own government and so on and so forth. Now, there's no shortage of offers of proof of the existence of Bigfoot, aliens, Elvis, so on and so forth. From grainy photos and tabloid stories filled with eyewitness accounts of, their, of people's abductions and their encounters with such creatures. Many are convinced of their existence and then they seek to convince the rest of us. One of my favorite memes, as you see here on the monitor, is that of Lincoln Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. I said Lincoln Abraham. Abraham Lincoln, who is quoted saying, don't believe everything you read on the Internet just because there's a picture with a quote next to it. Of course, the, 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 the drumbeat or the shoe that drops is the fact that Abraham Lincoln was not around when the Internet was invented. But you see these types of things go on. And now today with AI and everything else, it becomes very difficult with the advent of artificial intelligence, it's used now to manipulate images and films and videos to make us believe things that really aren't true. Even Elvis is back in the building as one company has created a new immersive show called Elvis Evolution. And it's coming soon to a show near you or to a theater near you. And in it, it will let you see, hear, and feel the legend, it says, like never before. Of course, with all these technologies come great dangers, as some will use them for criminal purposes, such as manipulating one's voice to convince a relative to give money or manipulating videos to blackmail the unsuspecting. We live in a day when a great number of people no longer trust the media, whether it's the big networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, so on and so forth, or formerly esteemed newspapers like the New York um, uh, Times or the Washington Post. People now are seeking out new ways to acquire information, and they're desirous to find new sources that they can trust. Now imagine... You are a member of the New Testament church in the Roman Empire about 30 years 
after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Now, during that first century, Rome was heavily influenced by Greek mythology and the practice of emperor worship, also known as the imperial cult. Caesar was God. Those most inhabitants of the Roman Empire were polytheistic. They worshiped several different gods and demigods, depending on their own situations, their location, and their preferences. For this reason, Rome contained many temples, shrines, and places of worship without a centralized ritual or practice. Most forms of worship were tolerated in the Roman Empire and by the Roman Empire government. Roman authorities didn't care who you worshipped as long as you included the emperor, the Caesar, and you didn't create problems with other religious systems. Now, that was a problem, though, for both Christians and Jews during the middle of the first century. That's because both Christians and Jews were fiercely monotheistic. They believed in one God. They proclaimed the unpopular doctrine that there is only one God. And by extension, they refused to worship the emperor or acknowledge him as any kind of deity. For these reasons, Christians and Jews began to experience intense persecution. For example, the Roman emperor Claudius banished all Jews from the city of Rome in AD 49. This decree lasted until his death five years later. This event event eventually led to a mass persecution of Christians during the reign of Nero. Roman historian Tacitus, in his book Annals, uh, Annals, published a few years after the event, wrote this. He says, therefore, to stop the rumor that Nero himself had set Rome on fire, he, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, Tactus writes. Accordingly, first those were arrested who confessed that they were Christians. Next on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the cities as of hating the human Race. That was the accusations against Christians in those days. Looking on the monitor, continuing that quote, it says, In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts, and they were worried to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set fire to, and when the day waned, they burned to serve for the evening lights. They were the lamppost of the city in those days. Now, imagine that you were a member of a church in that time period. You're being persecuted or or in danger of being persecuted for your faith. You're asking yourself, should I be a Christian? Who is this Jesus? Is following him worth my life or worth my life or the life of my family and friends? Now remember, they are facing possible death every day. This is not a peaceful death like I lived a full life type of death, but a painful one, a humiliating one, a torturous death. Luke's gospel that we're reading is written to those Christians. He is writing to encourage them, to remind them of who Jesus is. 
and to empower them to be willing to die for the sake of Jesus' name. In today's passage, Luke records the climax of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by stating that the, the, the central theme of Christianity is the fact that there is an empty tomb. That this Jesus that they worshipped rose from the dead. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, Luke 24, it's now Sunday. Jesus died on Friday. We looked at that several weeks ago. Well, last year, back in December. And then was quickly buried in a buried tomb. However, he was not forgotten by the three ladies who had marked where Jesus was buried as they then now return on Sunday after preparing the spices and the ointments needed to finish the burial process. Luke now records their perplexing testimony of that glorious morning. So join with me in Luke chapter 24 as we read 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed in verse 4 about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as, they were, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered His words, you may want to underline that. And they remembered his words in verse 8. And returning from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, these are the three ladies, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who with, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, just women telling tales. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose, in verse 12, and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Father, thank you for these eyewitness accounts and Luke who captures them for prosperity and for, uh, uh, for us to read this morning. But as we come to us, it's more than just a, a tale of fiction or a tale of three women, or just a, a history. This, these are the inspired words of God. The tomb is empty. There is a promise that's been fulfilled. And Father, people have been martyred, have died for this belief. And we thank you for your words that are true. And Father, I pray that if Jesus is alive, then the question we must ask, because I believe all believe here that believe that fact, But what does it mean for us? How should it affect our lives? How do we relate to that? And so give us wisdom, discernment, as we go through your scripture, that you may be glorified and our lives may be changed and transformed. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as a reminder, Luke began his gospel writing to Theophilus, a Gentile, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. 
Luke had interviewed those who were from the beginning were eyewitness accounts and ministers of the word so that he can write an orderly account so that Theophilus and the members of the church, and by the way, by extension, you and I today may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught about Jesus. So we are looking today the certainty, the confidence that the tomb is empty. That Jesus is not among the dead, but he is risen. Luke's gospel is written somewhere between 58 and 60 AD. So 30 plus years or so after Christ's death and resurrection. The persecution of the church is picking up steam in the Roman Empire. And Luke wants to give his readers confidence that Jesus, excuse me, truly was the son of God and the son of man. That he is the Messiah who was sent to reconcile man back to God. This is a, a truth that is worth dying for. However, the way Jesus accomplished this, reconciling man back to God, was not through insurrection of guards and armies against the Roman Empire. It was not by uh, throwing off the, 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 the oppressive religious leaders, but by sacrificing his life. As preposterous as that seems, Luke now confirms that not only did Jesus die, but that he also rose from the dead. The climax of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus has risen. Amen? The eyewitness accounts, these three women, and plus it seems that there were several women besides them, arrived at the burial site of Jesus only to find the tomb empty. Jesus is not here. The angels say that he is risen and he's looking forward to a reunion with the disciples. And exactly what we'll see later is especially Peter, the one who had denied him. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Church of Rome, remarks that the empty tomb proves that Jesus is God. And when he writes that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection is the capstone to his claim that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Luke does not present here, as we look here, a defense of Jesus' resurrection. This is no apologetic. He's not putting forth any evidence. He is just truthfully recording that Jesus rose from the dead. It is something that is not debated. It's a uh, historical fact. He does that by recording the time when the women went to the tomb. It was early in the morning, Sunday morning. The reason for their going to the tomb was to anoint the body. That was part of the ritual process. Their concern, their concern about moving a large stone, you might recall in Matthew and Mark's gospel, they point out that the size of the stone to demonstrate that a, a single person or even a group of women would not have been able to move such a large stone. And also the reaction to the events. They responded as anyone would at the site. They were perplexed. Where is his body? We don't understand. They were frightened. There was a rational fear at the encounter of these men. They bowed down, truly not sure of what was happening or who these men were at the moment. But let's consider the two men that greet. So it's not, it is a fact. He's not going to try to describe it. He's not going to try to defend it. It's just a fact. So let's now consider the two men who greet them in the tomb. Typically, when you and I read dazzling apparel, in some places it might mean white or shining clothes in scripture, that's a mark of a heavenly visitation. 
Matthew, in his gospel, identifies the man as an angel. Scripture informs us that angels serve as witnesses and messengers to the acts of God, both here on earth and in heaven. These angels serve as witnesses and messengers that Jesus has written. Now, interestingly, the gospel gives us no indication of how the resurrection occurred, just that it did. These angels also reassure them using the title that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Not only do the angels make an announcement and tell them what's going on, but they then remind them that Jesus had already prophesied before him, had taught them of his burial, death, and resurrection. The angels then instruct them to go to tell the rest of the disciples who are dismissive of their testimonies, as many of us would be. It would be very difficult to convince us of something uh, of such uh, extraordinary nature. Now, Peter tells that, or Peter, however, is curious enough to run to the tomb to investigate. There he finds that the tomb is indeed empty, but what's important in Luke's description of it, but he also notices that the tomb is not ransacked, as we can see that the linen cloths are folded up and put neatly. There, there is no destruction. There is no markings on it. It doesn't look like it's been torn apart. There's no grave robbery going on here. Leaving, he is at a loss for answers. He himself, even though he also had heard the teaching of Christ at least three times, still is at a loss for what has happened. Again, Luke, as always, his record is simple and to the point. The tomb is empty. A promise is fulfilled. Jesus has risen. He does not need it. He has returned that borrowed tomb to the owner. No longer in need. Use it yourself. Earlier, Landon had read in our scripture reading how the resurrection of Jesus was part of the teaching of the early Christian church there in 1 Corinthians 15, and that it was accepted without argument. The resurrection, as we're going to see, is the power of the gospel. However, not everyone wants to accept this supernatural event. Even today, some skeptics claim that Jesus' body was stolen. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, if you would, real quickly. The religious leaders had anticipated that something might happen to the body of Jesus. Interestingly, they do remember Jesus' teaching when it said that he would die, he would be buried, and that he would rise again. They knew that the tomb would be empty was a possibility. They had heard him proclaim that he would rise from the dead. So to combat this, they put a plan in place, and we find it in Matthew 28. Look at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. This is after Jesus' death. And when they, in verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the elders, speaking of the religious leaders. And they said, said this, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's eyes, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Speaking of Matthew and the time that he wrote the gospel. But yet you can see it finds no traction in the historical record. There's some who say, well, the women just went to the wrong tomb. 
However, Mark records that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. They watched from afar. We read that in Luke as we finished up chapter 23. Some would say that Jesus did not die, but he was just weak and faint, and he regained his strength and walked out after being put in the tomb. Yet again, Mark tells us that there were also women looking on from a distance. They saw Jesus die. They saw the soldier plunge the spear into the side of Christ. We have the testimony of the Roman guards and Joseph himself who supervised the burial of Jesus. You and I, we can find confidence and certainty in the gospel accounts. And if that's not enough, Paul points out that Jesus was raised on the third day by the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and the other disciples. We see in Acts or in in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to more than 500 other Christian followers. James and the apostles, Paul on the road to Damascus was a witness to the resurrection of Christ. This gospel of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, Paul writes, is of first importance. It's so important that he tells the Galatians that if anyone comes to you preaching a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. That is, that, that, now those, that's just not a word saying, well, just let them be silent. That's a word being cursed, being damned to hell. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no power in our lives today. There is no hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul contends that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we see here in the monitor, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christ is dead. Our preaching is in vain. I am wasting my time sharing the word of God to you. Our faith, our trust in God is in vain. We're all liars. We're all misguided or we're fooled. He goes on to say that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then there is no hope for those who have died before us. There is no heaven. There is no hope for those of us alive. We just need to take the philosophy of James Dean, right? Just live fast and die and leave a good corpse, a good-looking corpse. There's no salvation. There's no reconciliation with God. We are lost, enslaved to sin, powerless, prayed to sin, destined to die, and separated from God forever. Without the resurrection, we are a people with no hope. God is not faithful. And Jesus is either a fool or a liar. Not only that, Peter, Paul, all the disciples other than John were murdered or killed, martyred for a lie. This resurrection gives boldness and courage to Peter. Remember, he was the one who denied and deserted Jesus. But yet, as you turn to Acts chapter 2, look at verse 22. Forty days after the resurrection of Christ, after he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. This Peter, this man of false bravado as we talked about last year 
stood up among the masses and he preached with boldness in front of the crowds that had demanded the death of Jesus. And in front of these bloodthirsty people. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter preaches, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There was a life transformation. This belief, Peter eventually, though he's perplexed at this moment, as we'll see in the next two weeks as we go through, is Peter eventually is convinced of the the veracity, the truth that Jesus was risen from the dead. That the tomb was empty. And that a promise had been fulfilled. This changed his life, the tenor of his life. It gave him a a boldness, a courage that he was lacking before that false bravado was gone. And he was able to stand up before those who did not believe in Jesus and proclaim that Jesus is alive. This verse is captured in the song, One Day. It's a hymn. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away the door. Then he arose over death, he conquered. Now he has ascended, my Lord, evermore. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. Amen? Now I know you believe that. I'm not here to convince you of that which you are already convinced of. But what I do want to do is to come and give you a certainty and a confidence that that which you believe is of first importance and should be the tenor, the motivation, the goal of your life. My question is, is has the resurrection of Christ transformed your heart? Has it changed what you think? Has it changed what you love? Has it changed your will, your choices? I pray today that if you have accepted and embraced the resurrection of Christ as your hope, your security, and your joy. So how does giving confidence and certainty and assurance to the ministry of of Jesus, how does the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, how does that then relate to us? What are we to do with that today? You see, the resurrection of Jesus is more than just a historical fact. It is meant to do more than just give you evidence of the nature and identity of Christ Paul informs the Roman church here on the monitor that the the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So think of this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if that dwells in you, then he, God, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible is now saying that I have given that to you. The Bible tells us that those who have repented of their dead works and put our trust 
in God that he has accepted the works of Christ on our behalf. And that now you and I can have salvation. Several scriptures tells us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. We too were dead and then we are buried, but now we too are raised. The next verse, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And you were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of flesh. But again, God made alive together with him by forgiving the trespasses of our sins. And then for Christ, one last verse. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. The certainty, the confidence, the assurance of the empty tomb is that just as Jesus has been made alive, so are we. This is what this truth means to you. This is the, the, the importance of an empty tomb and the promise that is fulfilled. That just as Jesus was risen, so are we. Therefore, because of this, Scripture calls us to walk worthy of the manner of our calling as ambassadors of Christ. And so now I want to get to the point where we apply what we're learning here. You know the truth. You know, you understand its purpose. But now are you living out the resurrection of Christ in your life? I want to take a moment to consider how this wondrous truth can be applied to our lives. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 6, 4. In this passage, Paul teaches the Christ followers in Rome, and the first part of it here is on the monitor, verse uh, Romans 6, 4, but I want you to turn to Romans 6 anyway. But in Romans 6, 4, we read this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by, his, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so there is a purpose that God is working through each and every one of our lives. There is a resurrection that's happened to us as we are regenerated, as we are born again. He is telling them that since they are made alive, we have to walk a new life. We do not walk in the way that we used to. Luke gives them a written record with evidence that Jesus has risen. And so that ought to make a difference in your and I's life. Look at, uh, continue in Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We're delivered from the penalty of sin. We are delivered from the power of sin. That's what he's speaking of here. You and I now have the ability to say no to Satan's schemes. We can now choose to follow and walk in faith. Look at verse 8. I'm sorry, I think uh, nothing so that we shouldn't be no longer enslaved to sin. Look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And here's what I'm going to mark this right here. I just want to take a moment. I think this is where many of us are. We've spoken about this in the past. 
There are too many who would profess Christ, who sit in a pew every week, who maybe even read their Bibles. Maybe they're giving, they do all these things. But yet in so many ways, they're still enslaved to old sins. They have not yet found the freedom that is found in Christ. They're living as if they're dead instead of living as if they are alive. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For, in, uh, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the question is very simple. Believer, friend, are you living to God? Is your life marked by an obedience to him? Or do you find your life marked by drudgery? The slaw of despond is found in in the pilgrim's progress. You feel like you're making some distance, but yet you find yourself falling back time and time again. What this passage is telling us is that we've died to sin. It no longer has any power. Yes, yes, I know. We live now in the presence of sin. We will be fighting sin until the day that Christ comes or we die. But yet we have to realize that we're free from it. We're no longer enslaved by it. The shackles have been broken. But yet we continually pick them up and put them on. Or as as Christ says, we're like the dog who returns to his vomit or the pig who goes back to the, the mire. We have buried the old self. That desire to serve ourselves should be buried. And just as you and I go, we don't listen to dead men. We don't go to them for counsel. We don't go to them for entertainment. Too many times we're like men going to the graves of those that are dead and listening and asking them for advice or wishing they were still here. We've been raised a new creature with new desires, new thoughts, new choices, a new will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in that chapter that Landon read earlier, in verse 21, he goes on, Paul, Paul does, and he writes this here in the monitor. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all died, so also Christ shall be made alive. What Paul is doing in this passage is that he's encouraging believers, he's encouraging Christ followers, those who are facing persecution. He's saying you need to be encouraged. Your suffering is not in vain. The ridicule, the the, the way in which people malign your faith and your tradition, it is not in vain. There There is a purpose in it. That we're to be of good cheer, for Christ has risen. He is not in the de- He is not in the tomb. He is not dead. We're to be strong in fighting idolatry, for God is one. In other words, we need to recognize that all other gods are just false demons. They're demonic influences, and you and I must not be uh, led by them or fearful of them. We're to be strong in refusing to worship Caesar for Jesus is God. And you would say, well, wait a second, Caesar is dead. There is no, Caesar is no God. But yet we, in many ways, though we may not proclaim it, 
We have the government as God. It's one of our idols. We look to the government to feed us, to take care of us, to solve any consequences of our own decisions. We made scientists and other influencers our gods, those that we listen to, those that we, we, we try to please. But also, lastly, we're to be strong in fighting sin, for we are dead to self and risen with Christ. The same encouragements ring down through the ages. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 5. Here we are some 1,900 years later. And these words echo down for us as well. Because the tomb is empty, Jesus has fulfilled his promise to rise from the dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who is for their sake died and was raised. From now now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Look at verse 17. This is probably highlighted. If not, it should be underlined in your verse, in your Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Is your life marked by the resurrection of Christ? Does it find it in the things that you think, in the way that your thoughts develop? Is it found in the things that you love, the things you desire? And is it found by the things that you choose? If not, then I'd ask you to come before him today. Maybe you haven't come to Christ yet. Let me tell you, I don't need to convince you that they can raise Elvis from the dead by using AI. Jesus Christ himself is truly alive and sits at the right hand of God. And that he is coming again to save those who eagerly wait for him. And I pray that you do so today. Today is the savior of salvation. Do not wait any longer. If you're here and you have professed Christ and you're struggling in your life, then I pray that you look to the fact that because Jesus was risen from the dead, you are also. There is hope found. Yes, we must endure sin. We must endure life today. We must endure suffering. But as a good soldier, we march on, knowing that it's temporary. So let me conclude with this. Where do you look for support when you're perplexed and when you're frightened? These women go to the disciples, but they treat them just as silly old women telling women tales. Do you remember and claim the promises and the words of Christ? Is your hope found in the resurrection and return of Christ, or is your hope found in something else? Lastly, like these three women... We are called to be witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Again, I want to re- I encourage you to come to our ACC where we're learning how to do that, to be witnesses. 
To many, this belief that Jesus rose from the dead is ludicrous, crazy, idiotic, nonsensical, and irrational. They consider it as silly as Bigfoot, as a Bigfoot, Bigfoot sighting or declaring that Elvis is alive working down at the local 7-Eleven. However, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ. Many are like the disciples who consider the women as unreliable and full of idle tales. However, Dr. Schreiner reminds us that at that time, women were not considered reliable witnesses in Judaism. So it's interesting that God chooses them to be the first witnesses. He goes on to write that God in his sovereignty decided that these women would be the first heralds of the resurrection. We are reminded from this that our Lord does not demean women, but values them as humans made in the image of God. Yet God in his great wisdom chose these three women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And like these women, we must understand that he has called us to be his witnesses, no matter what the world thinks of us or our testimony or our word. He goes, on, he goes on to note, I put this here on the monitor for you, that sometimes we feel unworthy to witness because of negative feelings about our own Christian lives. Who are we to say anything? And that's how Satan works, right? You know your own sin. You know your own foibles. You know your own failures. Maybe your, your insufficiency or insecurity in sharing the good news. But when we witness, he writes... We are sharing not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're not advertising how good we are, but how great he is. And that is what the world needs. We can view, our, we can view witnessing, he goes on, from the perspective of works. Thinking that we should witness only when our lives are going great. But such a view of witnessing puts the emphasis on ourselves instead of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ, brings us great hope and assured victory over sin, over guilt, the shame that sometimes we feel, the death and the works of Satan as demonic horde. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen. For as he raised Jesus from the dead, so he raises us up that we may be with him. Let me close as the worship team and Randy comes, makes their way up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us live the victory that has already been assured to those who trust in God. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.